I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Transatlantic Tech Talks, a mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Undercurrents podcast, and it's great to be sharing with you this week three episodes on transatlantic cooperation in cyber governance and tech regulation. This is our last mini-series for 2021. As you'll know, sometimes we partner with the research programmes at Chatham House to deliver more in-depth, three-part stories around a particular policy theme that we think demands attention. You can go back through our feed and you can see mini-series that we've done on South Korea, we've done on peace building. Further back, we've looked at issues such as the future of design thinking, which was really, really fascinating. But this today is a collaboration between the Digital Society Initiative at Chatham House, the International Security Programme, the International Law Programme, and the US and America's Programme. It's part of a collaborative project which has been supported by Microsoft. So, what are we talking about? Transatlantic Tech Talks is a three-part mini-series which explores the state of international cooperation on digital governance between the United States, the UK and Europe. As technical innovation accelerates and new digital tools and business models arise, governments are working to develop a framework of regulations to safeguard the rights and interests of their citizens. Not all stakeholders agree, however, on the best way to achieve this. While some advocate a digital cooperation approach based on transparency and data sharing, others are more concerned with maintaining different interpretations of digital sovereignty. As technical innovation accelerates and new digital tools and business models arise, governments are working to develop a framework of regulations to safeguard the rights and interests of their citizens. Not all stakeholders agree, however, on the best way to achieve this. While some advocate a digital cooperation approach based on transparency and data sharing, others are more concerned with maintaining different interpretations of digital sovereignty. In this second episode of the series, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the issue of digital technical standards with three fantastic guests, all interviewed by my colleague Isabella Wilkinson, a research associate in the International Security Programme at Chatham House and our resident guru on digital technical standards. So joining Isabella, we have Emily Taylor, an Associate Fellow in the International Security Programme at Chatham House, editor of our Journal of Cyber Policy and CEO of Oxford Information Labs, Bilal Jamusi, Chief of the Study Groups Department at the ITU, and Richard Wingfield, the Head of Legal at GPD. Building on our opening discussion about the broad context and the different approaches to digital governance, this episode really dives into the issue of digital technical standards, the nitty-gritty of the sort of legal aspects of this and the, the technical aspects which really do influence how the international negotiations are conducted. I hope you enjoy listening. So thank you both so much for joining me today. 
I think that to many people, particularly a non-technical audience, the idea and kind of the concept of digital technical standards can kind of seem like a technical black box. And so I think before we dive into the meat of this episode, which is really understanding what digital cooperation and what transatlantic digital cooperation means in the field of digital technical standards, could I turn to you both for a brief definition of how you understand technical standards, what their purpose is and the impact on digital trade, the world around them? I know it's a huge question, but maybe I could start with Emily. Digital technical standards are a way of guaranteeing interoperability, particularly at the interfaces of things. So what does that mean? Well, if you think of a couple of examples from everyday life, when you buy you know, a standard lamp or something for your house, you know that any light bulb that you buy is going to fit into it. And that's really great for manufacturers of beautiful lamps. They don't have to worry about getting spare parts or light bulbs for that because they're standardized. And another sort of everyday example is plug sockets. When you travel, you normally have to bring different adapters so that your electrical equipment can work. Now, that's both an example of successful national standards because they all work within one country or region and they are all the same. But it's also a failure of international standardization. Those plugs are not interoperable. And so that means that the the cost of that and overcoming that falls on the users and also adds cost and friction for manufacturers. So standards are really important. They're important for trade. They're important for innovation. They enable interoperability. And often they are overlooked because they can be very technical. And that's correct because they're an expert process. However, they're really important to each and every one of us. Thanks so much, Emily. Bilal, you're joining us from the International Telecommunications Union, which is, I suppose, an example of where such standards are negotiated and kind of put on the table. I was wondering, could you give us a brief introduction of what standards development organisations are and the purpose that they serve? Yes, very happy to. Thank you, Emily. Societies and economies depend on international standards to communicate. The uh, telecommunication network relies on many standards for us to have this conversation today, for example, or for any two people to call each other on a telephone, a number of standards are used. So a very simple example is your telephone number is an ITUT standard called E.164. That just happens to be the number of the standard which gives the structure of a telephone number starting with a country code, then an area code, and then your personal number. That's one very basic example that 7 billion people are using around the world today on their mobile phones. Other examples are video compression standards that we are using to communicate now on the internet are based on another ITU standard that was developed in collaboration with ISO and IEC the sister international organizations here in in Geneva. So when we talk about interoperability of telecommunication networks and services, there are hundreds of standards that allow us to communicate in various media and channels. Thanks so much for that. And I want to pick up on the thread of interoperability or maybe more specifically threats to interoperability. In our workshops and our research here at Chatham House, a lot of what we do is focused on a proposal 
proposed by Chinese delegates at the ITU called New IP, and this idea of the splinter net and threats to, say, emerging technologies or the internet as we know it, open, free, shared, global. Do you think that, Bilal, you could provide a little bit of information about what New IP is, given that a lot of the time there's a lot of misunderstandings about it, what it means, when it was proposed and when it was tabled? Sure, I'm happy to. International standard development uh, relies on the collaboration among the market competitors. So competing companies need to come and agree on a standard because the products and services that they will bring to consumers have to adhere to those standards. So even though companies are competing, in the standards environment, they have to collaborate and agree uh, by consensus on the way forward. So the particular example you gave on uh, new IP is a, is a proposal that comes from members of the ITU, and it was proposed around the end of 2019 to our telecommunication advisory group because it was thought that it would be covering more than one study group in the context of ITU. And then it was referred to our study group that is looking at the future networks and, and cloud, and also the study group looking at signaling protocols. So the proposal of new IP was the proposal to create new work to develop this uh, set of standards. And any member in ITU, whether it's a member state or a private sector company, can bring a proposal. And other members in the ITU can either agree or disagree with that proposal. In the context of new IP, there was another name for it is future vertical communication networks and protocols. When that proposal was discussed in our study groups, technical study groups, there was no consensus to retain it. So the study groups moved on and they're working on other topics at the moment, but the proposal was not complete. So I could not describe it technically at this time, uh, but just to say that it is part of the normal process of standard development. Any company or country can bring a proposal. It's up to the others to agree or disagree. And our decision-making process is by consensus of our membership. Thank you so much for that overview. Emily, I was wondering if I could turn to you to ask a little bit more concretely about the Splinternet and maybe the narratives behind new IP or maybe more specifically the reactions to new IP, what it means and what it could mean for global tech governance and the internet as we know it. As we've explored in our own research here, a lot of the time terms and proposals like new IP are spoken about like a black box. People don't really know what's inside of them. Bilal's given us a really helpful understanding of the mechanisms within the ITU, within standards development processes that go behind talking about proposals such as these. But Emily, do you think that you could comment on the narratives and reactions to a proposal like this? So new IP is a set of proposals, and as Bilal very correctly described, these were not adopted, but I think that they are interesting for what they reveal about the role of standards in defining future technologies, and also perhaps the ambition of the country that put them forward, China, to become a technological superpower. So in very overview terms, new IP is an attempt to build an alternative internet. And 
the advocacy around it is really interesting because it builds on anxieties and and policy tropes that we're very familiar with concerning today's internet. The fact that internet security, cybersecurity is problematic, not solved, and also growing concerns over the consolidation in the market, the growing control over services and the network itself, the infrastructure by a small handful of large companies. So the advocacy around these proposals was that these problems will be solved through decentralizing the technology and a different way of identifying people or things that will enable trust, that will reduce latency, that would also pave the way for new generations of technologies such as holograms or autonomous vehicles. However, another view of the technologies, such as they are understood this time, and and Bilal is quite right in saying there's a lot that's not known, there's a lot that isn't clear about these proposals, but it appears that in practice, the alternative internet infrastructure proposed through new IP would introduce very fine-grained controls at the level of the network, which would enable bulk data collection, the tracking of users, the potential for mass surveillance. And in fact, although a lot of the technology involved, like blockchain, sounds very like it's adding security and privacy, the deployment of the blockchain itself, the ends of the end-to-end encrypted networks would actually convert the network into a much more intelligent object than we currently see in classic internet dumb networks, the dumb pipes, if you like. Thank you so much for that. So while new IP and the proposals constituting new IP are perhaps tabled or in the process of being tabled, what do you think about the ideas behind a set of proposals like new IP? Is this an anomaly? Is this an outlier? Or is this representing kind of the tip of the iceberg of a growing wave or growing movement towards state control, maybe central control of a state cyberspace? So technical standards and the internet is no exception are never completed. It's not like, that's it, we're done with this. And something as huge and complex an ecosystem as the internet, in my opinion, the standardization work will never be over. So it's completely appropriate for anybody to put forward suggestions for technical improvements. However, for me, what the new IP case study exemplifies is that for Western countries, The internet was designed with the democratic norms and values and respect for human rights that came as a a sort of natural flow from the people who created it in the US and and then early adopters in Europe. And until this point, really, I think there's been the dominant voices in certainly in the multi-stakeholder technical standards organizations such as the Internet Engineering Task Force, which is the traditional home of internet standards. The dominant voices in that environment were from the US and Europe, so democratic backdrop. For me, what new IP exemplifies is that standards are not neutral. They do embody whatever the, the values 
of their creators will be. And when you have standards created in organizations such as the ITU or ISO, they also have additional protections under international trade rules. And that would provide a very robust path into internationalizing the adoption of technologies built to those standards. And considering a country like China, its ambitions, its effective trade links through the Belt and Road Initiative, its very strong donor relationship with many developing countries, one can easily imagine a path to adoption of technologies that embody those standards and protected by international trade rules. Currently, there is no mechanism to set aside technical standards on the basis of human rights considerations. There are other exceptional ways of setting them aside. For me, whether or not new IP ever comes into being as one or more standards, whether or not it's adopted as a de facto standard within China or its trading partners, it has been a wake-up call for many about the geopolitical contestation within standards bodies and also the geopolitical advantage that standards can bring to whoever creates them. Thank you so much, Emily. Bilal, can I turn it over to you to comment on perhaps these broader geopolitical trends that may manifest themselves in places like the ITU? Sure. I I can't really speak as to the political background and values and so on of of our member states. Uh, That's certainly the sovereign domain of uh, of each of the 193 member states of the ITU. But as TSB, the Telecommunication Standardization Bureau, offering the um, services and the platform for the standards development, what we see is that there is, broadly speaking and globally, an interplay between certainly a collaboration between governments and the private sector members that are um, headquartered under those member states. And this is true for United States, UK, Europe, uh, China, any member state in the ITU. Uh, For us to admit their sector members, their private companies, we have to get the approval of the member state. And usually the delegations that come to our study groups where these technical standards are developed are composed of member state delegations, as well as sector member or private sector companies. And those companies speak on their behalf. Uh, They're usually, because they are directly members in the ITU. And that's probably what makes ITU quite unique in the sense that it's the only United Nations agency that has private sector members. And it's the only standards development organization that have governments. So uh, we have a very strong interplay between the governments and the private sectors under those member states. And historically, we have seen thousands of standards developed in the ITU, where both entities, uh, the government uh, stake and the private sector stake, is expressed at the meetings. And at the end, it is really the consensus that drives adoption and agreement. And our standards are voluntary. Uh, They're not mandatory in any way, although they're developed by an intergovernmental organization. They're voluntary standards. They could be adopted if a member state wishes to adopt them in law or a national standard, etc. That, again, remains a sovereign decision of the member state. And with any technology, once it's developed and, you know, any technical standard that is developed in the ITU, the usage of that technology is really outside of the realm 
of the ITU and, uh, and the, the process under which it's developed. It could be used for good purposes or for one member, it might be uh, a legitimate and, and good purpose. For another, it may not. We don't get into the, uh, the use and application of the standard. Our role is really to provide a platform for technical standards development. And the history shows over the 155 years or so where the ITU has existed, that this interplay between government and private sector serves the globe well, because we can communicate today. We have global standards, international standards, uh, that allow us to communicate and to scale that communication to billions of people. So the ITU as an institution is a very valuable one and one that we need. All of the people of the world need in terms of having that platform for dialogue between the East and the West developing small and big companies. And as long as the process is trusted and the platform is neutral and the decision is made by consensus, then the product is something that is relevant, inclusive and useful by the entire world. Bilal, thank you so much for sketching out the architecture, really, of how decisions are reached by consensus in somewhere like the ITU. I want to pick up on the idea of interplay between governments and private sector representatives in somewhere like the ITU or another standards development organization and the significance of this interplay. Emily, I'm wondering if I can turn it over to you to comment on how this interplay, how this multi-stakeholder relationship may look different in countries such as the UK and the US from countries such as Russia and China and how this kind of manifests at the international level at somewhere like the ITU or maybe a different standards development organisation. At the ITU, the national delegations, you know, how those are composed is up to the member state itself. So the UK delegation would typically include members of civil society groups as well as as technical experts. And as Bilal has said, there are also sector members who have a voice in and of themselves. There is quite a hefty fee associated with being a sector member. And that means that it's not necessarily within the financial reach of the smaller startups who might struggle to get that price tag. You know, a big difference is about the role of civil society organisations within standards making as a whole. And this is not an issue confined to the ITU alone. It is something that goes across all standards organisations. There are standards organisations like the Internet Engineering Task Force, where on paper, anybody can turn up and participate in standards bodies. But there are large barriers to participation in terms of knowledge, experience and influence. I think a major difference between the composition of national delegations between a democratic country such as UK or EU or US and more authoritarian is the role of dissenting voices. Are you going to get civil society organisations that might challenge or raise concerns over perhaps the societal impacts of certain technologies in authoritarian delegations? And one might suggest that there would be barriers to the participation of dissenting voices in those sort of situations. One of the points that Bilal correctly mentions is the voluntary nature of standards, which is an incredibly important point, and it runs through all standards making. There isn't a demand, a mandate that particular standards are adopted. 
However, once something has been standardised, it does legitimate that technology or that proposal to a certain extent. And also in the case of the ITU and some other bodies, those technologies enjoy trade protections internationally. And so while, of course, they are voluntary in the uptake, and of course, there's no telling with complex technologies how they will be used or abused across different countries or systems, there is something about standardization that gives a sense of legitimacy, that provides a sense of assurance, that gives a pathway to certification and quality assurance for manufacturers. And so there's a lot to be said for standards and also a lot of advantage to be gained by standards as well. Thanks so much for that. I want to turn now to the stakes of standards and I want to pull on a thread relating to how strong coordination currently is in standards development organisations to make sure that the standards developed and then almost set in stone with international trade protections, how to make sure that those standards help uphold democracy and kind of protect human rights if they can whatsoever. Do you think that current coordination to make sure that the democratic and the human rights implications of standards are really set in stone and kind of safeguarded. Do you think it's sufficient? At the moment, I think we're at a crossroads where the wider societal impact of emerging technologies is starting to really become apparent. And in a way, and this is in no way a criticism of the ITU or any other standards organisation, they are not adapted to protect human rights. That's not what they were built for. And so I think it's appropriate to think about, well, how do we do this? The Human Rights Council passed a resolution recently and is clearly looking at this area. And I think that it would be one that could benefit from a wider discussion involving the standards organisations and other institutions, international organisations that protect human rights, about how you do it within these expert engineering-led bodies. How do you keep track of or or identify potential human rights threats? And would there be situations where you could set aside standards on human rights grounds? I think those are conversations that urgently need to take place and the appropriate capacities and capabilities need to be inserted into existing organisations and structures. I'm going to turn it over to Bilal now. If you could maybe comment on, first of all, existing coordination to make sure that democracy and human rights are key considerations, even at kind of the technical standards level in somewhere like the ITU or another standards development organisation. But also it would be interesting, on the other hand, if you could comment on the existing status of, say, coordination between the transatlantic partners, the UK, US, EU and perhaps other like-minded democratic countries that may have a vested interest in making sure that digital technical standards reflect values which are amenable to them and their societies and their citizens? Sure, I'll, I'll try within the understanding that the standards developed by the ITU are technical standards. They're primarily bits and bytes of connecting phones or computers or servers to fiber optic networks to compressing video, to um, providing numbers to identify users or machines. 
So uh, most, if not all of our standards are technical. There are some regulatory in, in nature when it comes to tariffs and accounting, or maybe some of the security standards to encrypt the traffic or protect the traffic as it's transiting from uh, a sender to, to receiver. Other political considerations of human rights, etc., really outside the scope of our work in the ITUT. And, and it's really a subject of interpretation and principles, and different countries have different uh, sovereign views on these issues. So I can't really comment on that. All of our members, the 193 member states, are uh, the ones to agree on technical standards or, or otherwise. But the interplay is certainly something that is uh, important uh, in, in collaborating. And the collaboration globally, we see historically Europe, North America have been in the past very active in the ITU in terms of having many companies that produce products. Those products need to be relying on international standards. Uh, the companies have intellectual property that they developed in their research and development uh, labs. In fact, before joining the ITU, I was leading the standards department and uh, program in uh, in Northell in Canada and the United States. And one of the main reasons for private sector to come to ITU or IETF or IEEE is really to embed the intellectual property. We have a lots of research and development. Once your ideas and patents become part of the standard, they become very valuable. And then you have certain protection from litigation from other companies uh, in terms of exchanging patents and so on and so forth. So intellectual property rights, time to market, thought leadership, collecting competitive intelligence are some of the reasons that motivate companies to invest in standards. When I was in, in Nortel, we had probably 90 different standards development organizations for ICT and, and communication that I managed with a, about $10 million budget. So it's not a cheap investment. It is a significant strategic investment from a company perspective. All that to say that it's not, the, the companies are not really investing, you know, in the geopolitical discussion, but they have product to build and to sell. And in order to do that, they need to interoperate with other vendors. And that's why they come and invest in standards development. Certain aspects might have regulatory implications and that's when governments jump in in the ITU to say, for, for instance, you know, the numbering resources are assigned by ITU to the member state and then from the member state to the operators. So there is a regulator at the national level that has to be involved. Tariffs are inter-government or inter-countries. So agreeing on financial and economic issues is an intergovernmental organization and it's regulatory in nature and, and governments are quite active. Cybersecurity is another one. The quality of service and experience of a network. The operator needs to provide an SLA for the service being provided to customers, either nationally or internationally, and hence some of our performance and quality of service standards have regulatory implication. But all of the work is centered on providing interoperability of networks and services. There may be once in a while topics that spark the interest of the political debate and geopolitical debate. But again, when you come back to the process in the ITU, the way it's structured and that each member state has equal rights in terms of decision making, and that most of our standards, 95%, are driven by companies, private sector, you see why and how ITU has been providing this valuable service to the world to keep it united and connected for products that are used globally. 
that's something we have to protect as an asset internationally, because if we don't have an entity like the ITU where this dialogue can happen, then you can have the splinter factor where certain blocks of countries might agree to develop their own standard and sell their own product, and certain countries will do the same, and then we don't have international interoperability. So in a sense, it is good to have a place like the ITU where this dialogue can happen. And if there is consensus, we move forward. If there is no consensus, then there is no international standard. Thanks so much for that overview. I want to return to one of the final points you were saying about coming together, acting by consensus and avoiding the splintering of efforts, particularly in developing durable digital technical standards. And as we've seen, as we've heard, these standards have immense consequences for communications, how we talk to each other, how we interact with each other in societies around the world. As a final question to you both, I want to pick on this idea of a vision or a narrative behind technical standards. Is it possible or could it be possible for the emergence of, say, a consolidated democratic vision for engagement in standards development organizations when it comes to the internet, when it comes to emerging technologies and kind of the values underpinning standards in this area? Or is this untenable? The protocols that underpin the internet as opposed to a telecommunications network, they were characterized by being very simple, very lightweight, interoperable, open. So they didn't embed intellectual property or patents. They were just sort of open. And it meant that you could connect up anything. It it wasn't optimized for a single application. And that has enabled incredible innovation and growth. That's very exciting to me. And, you know, having been in this policy space for 20 years or so, I think that we've lost a little bit of that excitement and optimism about the original internet and, and the benefits that lightweight, open, interoperable standards can give. Also, I think we've been a little bit complacent as democracies in terms of thinking that things will always be as they were and that the power dynamics within standards organisations would always be dominated by liberal Western democratic values, and they're not. And it's quite appropriate that a region that has more than half of the world's internet users should want to have some say in how these technologies develop. And it's really important that there are fora where everybody can come together no matter what their differences are. Where I think the West has gone from complacency to panic in a very short time and now has to adapt a much more coordinated and positive vision for why those open interoperable protocols that are lightweight and that enable innovation, why that is the best pathway forward uh, for future technologies as well. And then it's about achieving consensus among multiple people from multiple backgrounds. And I think at the moment we've gone from being complacent to playing defense or slightly panicking, and we need to regroup and refine that optimism because there's some very, very exciting technologies just around the corner, which will transform the way that we communicate and and a lot of other things as well. And we'll look back on these times as a simpler time when things didn't seem so complex uh, in a very short time from now. So the West doesn't really have very much time to get its act together on this and propose a much more positive 
and optimistic way of engaging. Bilal, what do you think? Do you think it's time for the West or like-minded democracies to regroup and try to refine that sense of optimism? Well, certainly to influence the standards development process, uh, you have to be present. If you're not at the table, then the decisions uh, will be made by others. So we have always advocated in the ITU that uh, all of our member states be present and all of the companies operating under those member states, uh, operators or vendors, take part in the standards development process so that they can have their say in what's good, what's bad, what they like, what they don't like. So from that perspective, we always advocate for an inclusive, broad participation by both developed and developing countries. ITU has a significant developmental agenda and ensuring the uh, the needs of developing countries to be uh, at the table is a central objective of the ITUT, one of the five strategic objectives of the uh, standardization sector of the ITU bridging the standards gap, that is. So being at the table is important for everyone, developed, developing East, West, because the digital transformation and the connectivity under, underneath it, uh, whether it's the simple TCP IP protocol that uh, Emily mentioned, which is the foundation of the internet, or the many other protocols that were added to uh, the IETF. And I, I used to write internet standards uh, in the 90s, uh, the multi-protocol label switching, MPLS, uh, I have four RFCs request for comments on that uh, standard. So the internet has evolved significantly from the early days of the simple lightweight open standard. And most of the other RFCs today have IPR, I'm afraid, Emily. A lot of the ITF standards are also IPR encumbered. And that's the nature of the beast. If you have a lot of research and development to improve the network and evolve it, uh, there is some return on investment to those companies that made the R&D. Now, the digital transformation that all countries are going through, where you have an interplay between the digital sector, the ICT sector, the internet, the telecom, and the adjacent sector, whether it's healthcare, education, transportation, finance, that's creating a whole new suite of standards that allow that physical to cyber transition or physical to digital transition. A very simple example is financial services on mobile phones. Being able to pay and transact money on the phone requires security. It requires a robust identity and authentication and digital ID for each citizen. Many of the digital IDs are based on the phone number the E164 phone number from ITU. Others use your email address or a combination thereof. But the idea of digital transformation is one where collaboration among the sectors is critical. So many of our activities in ITU, for example, in the health sector, are in collaboration with WHO on digital health. On using new digital techniques for natural disaster management, they're with WMO and UNEP. In terms of digital financial services and financial inclusion, they're with the, the World Bank. So we see this as a, a new frontier of standards development to enable the digital transformation and to achieve the sustainable development goals. It requires significant collaboration among partners in the UN system or in other standards development organizations. So maybe I'd like to end on that note that the landscape is growing the digital technologies and ICTs are being used by other sectors, requiring yet more standards, more security, more interoperability. 
Thank you so much for that. And I think it's a perfect place to leave it. Thank you to you both so much for your time. Thank you for joining me and looking forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you, Bella. Thank you. So thank you so much for being here today. As a starting point, I want to leverage your own experience and your expertise in this field and ask you, from human rights perspective, what is the significance of technology that gets standardized in these standards development bodies like the ITU, like the IETF? Well, I think if you go back to some of the earlier days of the internet and digital technology, the standards that were being set were relatively uncontroversial to the extent that they were very narrowly focused on making sure that the internet just worked properly, that it worked efficiently and effectively, and that data packets that were being sent from one part of the world would arrive in the other part of the world. So in the early days, I don't think there was a huge amount of attention being paid by those of us who were working in human rights. Uh, we weren't looking particularly at standards, although we recognised there were certain policy issues flowing from the internet and from technology. That's no longer the case. And I think that what we now have is an environment where standards are now feeding into so many different ways that technology is used and applied in practice that they're becoming increasingly political. And I mean political with a, with a small p there, and as much as they have policy implications for societies and, and of course, governments around the world who, who take an interest in various policy issues are also becoming aware of the impact that standards can have. And I think one of the challenges that that has created is that the standard setting bodies are, for the most part, organisations that have existed for a number of years with a number of technical experts within them who have found ways to work together and collaborate to develop these standards relatively free from governmental or any other kind of involvement. So we're now in an environment where we recognise that these standards are having policy implications, everything from privacy, security, uh, and freedom of expression to other human rights. And we're seeing an increased level of attraction from governments as well to make sure that standards don't undermine their own policy uh, plans within a particular country or, or in any way don't undermine what the government is trying to achieve. And that, of course, necessitates other stakeholders then to come in, including civil society and, and traditional human rights voices. So we're in a really interesting environment uh, at the moment. I think you look at the recent conferences over the last 12 months or so where governments have been increasingly vocal, particularly the US and the UK, it seems, on greater attention by governments and standard setting bodies. And so that really is a call for all of us to make sure that, that we're, we're at the table and working together to, to ensure that they're done and developed in a way which is, which is consistent with human rights. I mean, over the past few weeks alone, we've had three major summits where standards have, I suppose, received renewed attention. I mean, I would argue normally it can be quite a dry policy area. It can be quite impenetrable. There's a black box, you know, talking about digital technical standards. And sometimes for non-technical audiences, it could be difficult to explain the significance of these four things like human rights and democracy. And in these three summits, the idea of an open internet has really been top of the agenda, top of everyone's reading lists. It's been kind of a hot topic among policymakers. I was wondering if you could explain to me, again, from this human rights and digital human rights perspective, how do standards setting processes fit into protecting and maintaining and adapting the internet as we know it, the open internet? That's a really great question. And it's, it's one I, I wish I could give a really nice short answer to, but it, it, but it is relatively complicated. So a lot of the attention that I think 
that these conferences and summits are focusing on is the increasing role that China in particular is playing in the development of the internet and through technical standards bodies. And I think sometimes there's an assumption among all of us that the internet exists in the way it does simply because that's the only way it could exist, that, that there is only one kind of internet that we could have, and that's the internet that we all use and that we're all familiar with. Some of the attention by other governments around the world, particularly China, is on the development of alternative forms of internet and internet architecture. And some of the ways that the US and other countries want to sort of maintain the existing structure, which, which, which is often called a, a sort of a free, open and secure internet, is to make sure that the internet that we have does not start to lead to things like mass surveillance, restrictions on privacy, greater forms of control and censorship over what people are doing online. The internet that we have at the moment, for the most part, at least in the West, is one which is very much focused on things like maintaining free flows of information without government control, maintaining data protection and privacy. Now, this form of internet is is not one that is going to be liked by governments who want to exercise a degree of control over their population in a way that they traditionally are able to do so in the offline environment through physical law enforcement personnel and so forth. So, so we are seeing some countries now start to use standard setting bodies to propose an alternative kind of internet architecture, one which gives governments a much greater degree of control and access as to what people are doing online, making it far easier, for example, to censor unpopular terms or websites or to identify which individuals are, are doing what online. So when we talk about and when we look at these governments talking about a free, open and secure Internet and talking about standards, what they're really doing is making sure that these standard setting bodies, which are sometimes multi-stakeholder, uh, sometimes very technical, and in one case, the ITU, uh, a multilateral body, that the existing idea and vision of the Internet as this free, open, secure and human rights respecting environment is one that is maintained and upheld. And I think partly because some governments haven't really paid a lot of attention in the past and so have been caught somewhat by surprise, I think, or feel a little late to the game in terms of reacting to, to the efforts that China and others have made for a number of years now. So I'm getting the impression that there's two or even more competing visions for global internet. How does competition between different visions or models for internet and internet governance manifest itself? How does it manifest itself in standards development organisations? Can you give me a couple examples? Absolutely. So one is, I'll give us a simple example and then a more complex example. So one very interesting one, which is not necessarily related to the internet directly, but is a huge issue when it comes to technology, is the use of facial recognition technology which is being used by many governments all over the world for very for various purposes. And we're now questioning and trying to determine as societies what is the best way of regulating this technology, because we know that it may serve legitimate purposes, but it's also an incredibly intrusive form of surveillance and one which can be quite almost Orwellian in nature, if, if not used appropriately. So what we're seeing, for example, is the Chinese government using the ITU to try to set standards as to what the appropriate forms of governance and regulation of facial recognition technology could be. And, and as one would expect, these standards that they're pushing forward give a lot of dis- control and discretion to governments as to how they want to use it, broad acceptance for its use in law enforcement and security purposes, very few safeguards for privacy or other human rights. So that's an interesting example of where China in particular is saying this is what the regulation of facial recognition technology should look like and then trying to get that established as a global standard that then other governments and and regulatory bodies around the world would would sort of translate into domestic policy. The bigger example, which is in some ways more worrisome, but at the same time a little more theoretical, 
are things called the new IP proposals that either the Chinese government or the company Huawei or some kind of collaboration between, depending on your understanding of, of, of how they work together. The new IP proposals are essentially an alternative form of internet architecture, which are being pushed at the ITU. Now, I think the legitimation question, or the legitimization question rather, is a really interesting aspect of this because even within standard setting bodies, rarely are they mandatory. So no Chinese proposal at the ITU, for example, even if adopted, would necessarily become binding on every single member state in the world. But what it does is it gives a legitimacy to that proposal, to that idea, which means that whereas we may say that China's vision of the internet from a human rights perspective is very troubling and, and, and inconsistent with international human rights framework, if it's been adopted and approved by another UN body like the ITU, it has a legitimacy there, which means that it's much more difficult to challenge it. And it obviously then makes it easier for governments who are looking for sort of off-the-shelf solutions to transpose those standards developed at the ITU international law. So those are a couple of examples of the way we're seeing uh, human rights concerns raising their head in standard-setting bodies. In my earlier conversation with Bilal and Emily, I got the impression that the new IP proposals constituted a watershed moment, a wake-up call, really, for like-minded democracies around the world. Has the new IP moment, so to speak, inspired better coordination or cooperation among like-minded democracies in standards development bodies in order to kind of provide a counterweight to the values and the norms packaged within new IP? I think it's a little bit too early to answer that, that question. Next year is going to be a huge year for the ITU, of course, with at least at the moment, three major conferences planned throughout the year. And the, the biggest, the plenipotentiary conference, which is the, the sort of the, the four yearly conference at the very highest level of the ITU, which sets its mandate and its roles and responsibilities over the next four years. So I think if we have this conversation again this time next year, I'll be able to give you a much better answer as to, as to how effective the coordination was. What I think we are starting to see is at least publicly greater commitment and awareness raising by governments to work together in the future. We saw this, for example, with the UK and the digital ministers track the G7, uh, talking about greater collaboration among G7 members with a particular focus on, on digital standards. And of course, it's also been an issue that, that's come up at the Summit for Democracy as well. So I think whereas in the past we had very little coordination, or if there was any coordination, it was by the relevant ministries within government for things like communications, who always work together on these issues, what we're now seeing is an interest at the very highest levels of government as not just a communications, but as a geopolitical issue that they need to pay attention to. The big question is how effective will that coordination be in practice? And will it be enough to react and respond effectively to the work that's going on at the ITU, for example, or in other spaces as well? I think some elements of the Summit for Democracy and other of these conferences has made me wonder whether they really are going to be particularly effective. And I say that simply because a lot of governments still seem to be talking over each other. There still seem to be a lot of tensions between uh, different parts of you know, what, what should be a group of like-minded allies. Perhaps not so much now, but certainly I think a few years ago, you saw quite a divergence between the EU and the US, for example, in its approaches to digital policy. So the very fact that we've had all of these conferences in Denmark, in the UK, in the US, looking at this issue is good. But the very fact that three conferences took place almost at the same time trying to talk about the same issue suggests that the coordination efforts aren't really there just yet. And I think 2022 will be a pivotal year for that. 
So looking ahead to 2022, what are some of the ideal steps that the transatlantic countries could take in order to bolster their cooperation and coordination in this field? And what are the stakes? So I think there's various ways that they can formally cooperate. I probably don't believe that there's a need for a new particular formal grouping or alliance of the governments to, to be working together on this. There are a number of existing mechanisms that are looking to ensure that the internet remains free, open and secure. I would look at spaces like the Freedom Online Coalition, for example, where governments are already coming together to talk about digital policy and coordinate. So it would be wonderful to see governments really step up and start to participate a little more actively in these conferences when it comes to digital standards. And that would mean setting forth common positions at the ITU, making sure that they were well represented at the various conference and events that take place next year. And I think doing so very explicitly with a human rights focus or using that language quite explicitly, I think would be would be very powerful. And I think connected to that, though, there's also a, a degree of importance I would attach to, to other stakeholders working with them. Because the internet, I think, as most of us would like would like to, to see, should be governed in a multi-stakeholder way. And that means bringing in governments, the private sector, civil society, technical experts, academia, and so forth, working together because all of these issues affect all of us and all of us can bring something to the table. So if we're looking at spaces particularly like the ITU, which at the moment is a multilateral environment for the most part, it would be wonderful to see these like-minded governments open up those spaces, either bringing in uh, other stakeholders into their national delegations, finding some other informal ways to, to bring other stakeholders into the policy positions that they develop and, and their advocacy actions. And I think the stakes are significant. There will always be countries that have sufficient power and a capacity to do what they want when it comes to these issues. So to stick with China, for example, but you could also include Russia here and many other states, there's very little that's going to happen to influence what they do domestically. China's internet will be what the Chinese government wants it to look like, regardless of what ITU standards say, and, and, and similar to an extent with Russia. So the biggest question for me is that that legitimacy question, because both of these countries are trying to influence the broader regions. China looking at parts of Southeast Asia and Africa as part of its various initiatives to, to promote its own foreign policy. And so if we start to see proposals at the ITU get adopted and get the legitimacy of a UN body saying these are global standards, we might then start to see more countries who generally don't take such a strong position uh, when it comes to the sort of the Chinese versus US model of, of internet governance leaning towards uh, the ones that have been adopted at the ITU and with the endorsement that that carries. So I think the legitimacy question is a hugely significant one because a lot of these governments, and I would say many of them are in parts of, of Africa, don't necessarily have the resources to be able to influence digital policy domestically in the way that they would like, but can look to ITU standards as an off-the-shelf model for what regulation could look like or what national standards should be imposed. So I think the stakes are significant. I don't think what, what happens at the ITU next year will really change anything in, in China. But what it might do is start to tilt the balance of power that currently exists between the US and China when it comes to, to digital policy. And I think we'd be looking at countries in parts of Latin America, Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, for example, which could go either way. I think that ending it on the question of legitimacy and kind of tilting this balance of power using global engagement is a perfect place to leave it. Richard, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great.
That's it for this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed listening and that you enjoyed episode one as well. You'll be excited to hear that there is one more episode in the series still to come, where we'll be looking at the issue of digital trade with some other fantastic guests. If you've liked what you've heard so far, we would love it if you left us a review and if you subscribed and shared the podcast wherever you can. It really, really helps other people to find this. Episode three will be with you very soon if it's not already in your feed. And till then, thank you very much for listening.